Need a Kleenex there, George? That was George Robb from the very funny Geologic Podcast, who kindly provided me with the intro music for this podcast. Check out George on iTunes and buy his stuff, and check out the Geologic Podcast available on iTunes. He is one of my favorites. Anyway, welcome to the QuackCast, a skeptical evaluation of quacks, frauds, and charlatans. <laughs> Not PC again. I mean supplements, complementary, and alternative medicine. I like the acronym. This podcast is being done on the last day of August 2008 and is going to cover vitamin C in the common cold. Brought to you by Pusware LLC, the publisher of the Persiflazer's annotated compendium of infectious disease facts, opinion, and dogma, your uber hyperlinked electronic guide to infectious diseases. Available at pusware.com. We will also find the Persiflazer's Puscast, a bi weekly review of the infectious disease literature for the healthcare professional and the psychotic amateur. Continuing Medical Education, or CME accredited. Brock Spinoza once said, quote, I have made a ceaseless effort not to ridicule, not to bewail, not to scorn human actions, but to understand them, end quote. That does not apply to this podcast. This podcast has what I like to call evidence-based ridicule. Or as Thomas Jefferson said in a different context, ridicule is the only weapon that can be used against unintelligible propositions. Ideas must be distinct before reason can act upon them. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm off to the slave houses. I don't think that was the whole quote. References are available on the website, as are MP3s. The extended version has podcast chapters, so you can skip ahead or and no longer have to listen to this intro. Also, check out the website, sciencebasedmedicine.org, where I am a bi-weekly or so contributor. Because the world needs more Mark Chrislip. Trademark Mark Russell Incorporated, unauthorized use, forbidden by Major League Baseball. Anyway, I want to thank everyone who sent an email in reference to the change in the RSS feed. Now that I have all your email addresses, soon you will all be receiving an invitation to join me in a new multi-level marketing opportunity where we will sell supplements, complementary, and alternative medicines. All you have to do is recruit 20 other sellers, and you get the profit from their sales, and they then recruit 20, etc., etc., I am going to call it scam what? Uh, no, that pun is too bad even for me. So on with today's podcast, Vitamin C. I get a lot of email from the smart people in Australia and New Zealand. So whether it's vitamin or vitamin, potato or potato, tomato or tomato, well, we'll go with vitamin for this podcast. I'm going to cover vitamin C as it relates to infections, focusing on the common cold. I'll save the issue of vitamin C and cancer for another time. Vitamin C is, well, duh, a vitamin found in fruits and vegetables. So what happens if you do not take in enough vitamin C? Vitamin C deficiency leads to scurvy, hence the pirate talk. Are you scurvy dog? My children can't go see pirate movies because they're rated R. 
Scurvy is an unpleasant disease with an unpleasant death. Now, vitamin C is required to make collagen, the stuff in our soft tissues that holds us together and, when injected on our lips, makes them so puffy and kissable. Without vitamin C, you cannot make your supporting tissues, and there'd be nothing to augment your wrinkles. Your soft tissues fall apart, you become wrinkly, no one wants to kiss you, you bleed and painfully die. Interestingly, humans and apes and monkeys, maybe because we have a common ancestor, as well as guinea pigs and fish are some of the few animals that can't synthesize their own vitamin C. Every step of the pathway is present in humans but the last. Humans do have a pseudogene, a gene that no longer functions, that resembles the enzyme that codes for the last enzyme of the vitamin C pathway. Curious, why? For whatever reason, our distant monkey boy ancestor, or perhaps our monkey girl ancestor, mutated the gene, probably in a vitamin C-rich environment, and so the mutation was passed on harmlessly from person to person. Now, the Institute for Creation Research and Daniel Criswell was kind enough to publish on their website an alternative explanation. Quackery can be found in unexpected places. Now, if precision of thought is represented by precision of speech, then I'm in trouble. But the opening paragraph of this article does not inspire confidence. The author uses the terms common cold and flu as if they were synonymous and confuses the two. Two very different diseases, and the author is allegedly a Ph.D. in microbiology. Ph.D. is, by the way, acronym for piled higher and deeper. He gives two options for this pseudogene. One, God created Adam and Eve without the genes to make vitamin C, which is no big deal because there's plenty of fruit in the Garden of Eden, except, of course, the apple, which it turns out is low in vitamin C. Perhaps God's injunction not to eat from the tree of knowledge was an attempt to prevent scurvy. The apple is low in vitamin C, but high in knowledge of good and evil. And yes, I know the apple is not mentioned by name in the Old Testament. The other possibility given in the paper is that humans lost the genes during evolution that make vitamin C. But this doesn't fly well with the Creation Research Institute. Quote, Thousands of human pseudogenes have been cataloged, but in spite of similarities to functional genes, the exact role of pseudogene sequences in the genome are not known by any scientist. It is not necessary to assume that pseudogenes are remnants of one's functioning genes that have been lost and now clutter the genome like junk in a rubbish heap. It is possible that these regions of DNA do have a role in human and animal genomes, and this role has not been discovered yet, end quote. In other words, while this gene looks like it should make vitamin C, it doesn't. Maybe it does something else that we do not yet understand. Something that looks like the last step in the vitamin C synthesis, but isn't. And how do we get the understanding of synthesis pathways of vitamin C? The Institution for Creation Research. That's right, they have research in their name. So I would imagine they have a solution that would involve research. I quote, quote, So did Adam and Eve have a gene to code for an enzyme that would synthesize vitamin C? And was this information eventually lost as a result of the curse? Or were they simply created without this information in their genome? The question might not get answered until Christ returns. End quote. Curse versus not-so-intelligent design. I choose curse. I'm sorry, this is not a useful research proposal. So, humans can't make vitamin C, and God cursed Adam and Eve with the need to drink orange juice or get scurvy. Now, vitamin C, besides collagen, is used in a variety of enzymatic functions. 
Plants do not make collagen. Have you ever seen an ear of corn with augmented lips? What role does vitamin C play in plants? Vitamin C in plants is an antioxidant. It may have been one of the first metabolic responses of plants to making oxygen, a very toxic molecule. Oxygen is, curiously enough, an oxidant. In fact, it's one of the best oxidants. I wonder why. But it's the oxidant properties of vitamin C that are touted as anti-cancer, but it is for the treatment of common cold that is the topic of this podcast. Vitamin C is easy enough to find in the diet. Fresh fruits and vegetables are the key. Try telling that to the British Navy in the days of sailing ships. While out at sea, conquering the world and making sure that the sun never sets, the sailors would come down with scurvy. Sailing ships in the era before food preservation were not noted for having fresh fruits and vegetables on the menu. Think of travel in the 1700s next time you complain about airline food. In 1747, James Lynn did a very simple experiment. And here I will quote from the Wikipedia because I'm too lazy to rewrite it. Quote, Lynn thought that scurvy was due to putrefaction, I love the word putrefaction, of the body which could be prevented by acids. Hey man, try the acid. That is why he chose to experiment with dietary supplements of acidic quality. In his experiment, he divided 12 scorbutic, those are people that lack vitamin C, sailors into six groups. They all received the same diet. In addition, one group was given a quart of cider daily. Group 2, 25 drops of elixir of vitriol. Primarily, I think, consumed on the Fox Network now. Group 3 had six spoonfuls of vinegar. Group 4, a pint of seawater. Group 5 received two oranges and one lemon. And the last group, a spicy paste, plus a drink of barley water. The treatment of Group 5 stopped after six days when they ran out of fruit. By that time, one sailor was fit for duty, and the other had almost recovered. End quote. So he found that lemons and oranges, why the British are not referred to as lemonies and oranges, I do not know why, prevented scurvy. Like cholera, they had no understanding of the biology of scurvy, but the power of the scientific method is such that if the experiment is done right, the results can be meaningful. It was the first randomized controlled trial in history, and it started the medical science down the pathway of increasingly complex and sophisticated clinical studies to tease out the effects of therapies on diseases. So vitamin C was eventually discovered, and the biochemical pathways involving vitamin C were elucidated, and then all was good. Enter the Peter Principle. This is from a book from 1968 that said, and I quote, In a hierarchy, every employee tends to rise to his level of incompetence, unquote. It helps explain why the world is run so half-acidly. People keep getting promoted until they reach a job that they can no longer do, and there they stay. A corollary of the Peter Principle is that when one rises to the very top, the pinnacle of a field, and when you cast your gaze over the world and all you see are the shiny bald heads of the midgets over whom you tower, when there is no further up you can go in your area of expertise, then you find a whole new field and become totally, completely, unbelievably incompetent in that field. For some reason, medicine and the biological sciences has an attraction for the brilliant where they can prove their incompetence. And that, of course, brings us to Linus Pauling. The man had two Nobel Prizes, one in chemistry, one in peace. It's hard to argue with two Nobel Prize. He was the top of two fields. So, time to find another field and search for that ultimate incompetency. Marie Curie, the only other two-time winner, and both times in that case in the sciences, 
at least had the decency not to become a crank as she aged. Linus, maybe not so much. In 1970, Pauling published a book called Vitamin C and the Common Cold. Pauling was introduced to the concept of excessive amounts of vitamin C by a Dr. Irwin Stone, who did research in vitamin C in the 1950s and 1960s and became convinced that vitamin C was required at far higher doses than the 60 milligrams a day recommended by the FDA. Dr. Stone did some good basic research into vitamin C in the old days, and evidently there are a series of clinical trials in the 30s and 40s and 50s that suggested benefit from increasing doses of vitamin C and altering the course of the common cold. This meme was passed to Dr. Pauling, who had survived kidney failure. He had some sort of glomerular nephritis, I can't find which type, and some kinds of glomerular nephritis get better on their own. However, Dr. Pauling thought he got better due to diet and vitamins. Now, association is not causality, but this is evidently lost even on Nobel laureates, as well, I suppose, as purchasers of Airborne. Dr. Pauling developed what was often a fatal disease in the era just before real medicine began. He had a special diet and vitamins, and instead of dying, as many people did, he got better. As someone once said to me, rationality is not the default mode of the brain, and when faced with what should have been an early death, instead he had a near-miraculous recovery. So he was primed to fall for some really goofy stuff. Could have been Scientology, or acupuncture, or Velikovsky, or whatever. In this case, it was vitamin C because it saved his bacon. Then, with little good data, he wrote a book suggesting a thousand milligrams of vitamin C was needed to prevent and treat colds. As time went on, he suggested increasing amounts of vitamin C such that towards the end of his life, he was suggesting 40,000 milligrams a day to prevent the cold. Have you ever made a salt-encrusted beef roast? You take a roast and you pack it in a thick crust of salt, and when you roast it, the salt forms a solid shell that traps the moisture of the beef and makes for a very tender cut of meat. At 40,000 milligrams a day of vitamin C, I suppose it will lead to a crust of vitamin C on your outside, preventing the cold from reaching you. Now, at the power and prestige of two Nobel Prizes that, despite little data, few clinical trials, and little biologic plausibility, now millions have been spent on vitamin C and vitamin C research. When somebody with a Nobel Prize speaks, people listen, even when they're talking out their butt. And then what like the evidence, did many expensive clinical trials to show, well, let's see what these clinical trials have demonstrated. Let us start with biologic plausibility. So what does vitamin C have to do with the immune system? Not much that I can find. Now, I'm talking here about normal people or animals who are allegedly nutritionally complete, not people with deficiencies, not diseased animals or diseased people. It is said in the old days, for example, that people with scurvy were more prone to infections. And I do not doubt that they were, since vitamin C is involved in a variety of metabolic functions that would be needed to help fight infections. These are generic functions, however, not specific anti-infective functions. And I would bet these patients had more than vitamin D deficiency. Remember, vitamin C in the context of today's podcast is its use by normal people in large doses to prevent or abort infections. It is striking, given the brouhaha <laughs> over vitamin C, just how few references you get when you search various permutations of vitamin C and the various components of the immune system. 
Despite 30-plus years of touting its benefits, the number of studies that lend biologic plausibility approach the value of ZIP plus 3. The effects, such as they are, appear to be more nonspecific than specific in that, yes, vitamin C is important for normal metabolic function of the immune system, but there's nothing unique about vitamin C and immune function. The same could be said, say, of an essential amino acid or sodium. There is an optimal metabolic milieu for physiologic systems to operate at their best, which includes, among other things, vitamin or vitamin C. The other interesting thing about the vitamin C basic science research is that there's mostly a smattering of articles in the late 70s and early 80s, shortly after Pauling's book. What few articles there are are not what one would consider high-impact biological journals. I have a feeling that a lot of researchers did some preliminary work on vitamin C in the immune system, found nothing, and moved on to more fruitful research projects, although I think vitamin C would be fruitful. Our fruits are more vitamin C-full. Anyway... So, could I find articles on vitamin C augmenting the function of white cells? Nope. Augmenting the function of antibodies? Nope. Augmenting the function of complement? Nope. Augmenting the function of cytokines? Nope. Augmenting the function of lymphocytes? Can you guess the answer? Nope. I did find two articles that show vitamin C had an adverse effect on lymphocytes, one where it decreased the effect of natural killer cell function, and another which decreased the response of lymphocytes to antigens. Both of these were in vitamin C normal people, but I cannot find any data that suggests that normally function wings of the immune system have benefit by extra vitamin C. There is no test tube biologic plausibility to support that. At least, not that I can find on PubMed. And so, how's about animal studies? Are there any good animal studies to get the nice people at PETA, people eating tasty animals, up in arms, or the Animal Liberation Front? There are a large number of studies that show in animals, primarily guinea pigs, which, by the way, don't make their own vitamin C, that if they have severe infections, augmenting their vitamin C is associated with better outcomes, often measured different ways. Some studies show no benefit. Most studies have small numbers of animals and quite variable endpoints. Some endpoints are things like survival. Others may be the number of parasites in the gills of fishes. It is an interesting literature and not a surprising one that if you give animals severe infections, they have better outcomes if you augment their nutrition. What no one seems to have done is get a consistent animal model of a single infection and work out what, if any, effects there are of vitamin C and under what circumstances. Most researchers seem to have dabbled in vitamin C and moved on. Vitamin C is important in a variety of metabolic functions. If you, say, burn a mouse and infect it with bacteria, that's stress. Metabolic demand skyrockets. Having extra of anything around to help with function would probably add to improve outcomes, which is what you see in most of these studies. But to the question of whether under normal operating parameters there is a benefit to the host immune system or outcomes of routine infections with extra vitamin C, not much. And we'll move on now to human trials. As none of the animal trials really bear on the issue of normal healthy people and the common cold. Again, the power of an idea from a Nobel laureate takes over. Little supporting basic science. No supporting animal trials as far as the common cold is concerned. 
But we do have the word of a Nobel laureate, so let's not let the pesky lack of biologic plausibility get in the way of clinical trials, or for that matter, letting the results of these studies change our mind. But let's talk about the clinical trials. For the common cold, there are two ways vitamin C is used, as a prevention and as a treatment. Part of the problem is that the cold is due to over 100 viruses, many of which are due to what's called a rhinovirus, from the Greek word rhino, meaning snotty nose. But it is all these different viruses that cause the common cold that explains why we can fake putting a man on the moon, but we can't fake a cure for the common cold, except for the airborne folks, I suppose. By the way, I am particularly proud of that particular sentence. Now let's take them one at a time, remembering that the RDA, the recommended daily allowance in the United States for vitamin C, is between 60 to 95 milligrams a day. My son thinks his RDA should be 5 bucks. Dream on, boyo. And I am interested as a clinician in real differences, meaningful differences, something that really changes the impact of a disease. If, say, an intervention decreases your cold symptoms by one hour over a seven-day illness, it's not that impressive. It may be real, but it's not clinically relevant. Prevention trials merge into duration symptom treatment trials, so some of the data has two endpoints, acquisition of a cold and then subsequent treatment of a cold. Now remember that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, or an ounce of perversion is worth a pound of pure. So does vitamin C prevent the common cold, or do they decrease the severity of the common cold? And always remember the arc of clinical trials. First, there are small, uncontrolled trials to establish plausibility, which eventually lead to definitive, randomized, placebo-controlled, double-blind, large trial published in high-impact journals. Bigger, better, later trials in good journals always trump smaller, worser, earlier trials in less important journals. Several kinds of studies one could do would look at the efficacy of vitamin C. One, give one group vitamin C and the other placebo, then give them both a shot in the nose of a cold virus and see what the infection rates are and what the disease severity is. The advantage of this kind of study is you know what is causing the infection and exactly when they acquire it, when you squirt the virus in their nose. The problem is what if you happen to pick the one virus strain that is unresponsive to the miracle that is vitamin C? Now I find these kinds of trials to be particularly compelling in that the infection is very well defined, the onset, you know the bug, especially in an illness that is as heterogeneous as the common cold. And it gets away from confounding issues such as non-viral diseases like allergies, which could mimic a cold. There's nothing an infectious disease doc likes more than a study that controls for the causative organism. And what does such a study demonstrate? Well, they gave placebo or 3,000 milligrams of vitamin C daily for several days and then inserted live cold virus directly into noses and then continued the vitamin C or placebo for seven more days. This was published in the Journal of Infectious Diseases. Everybody caught a cold. Everybody had equal severity. Now, for me, this would be case closed. Although, to be fair, one would have to repeat the study with the other 100 or 200 or so viruses that cause a cold. But then I don't have a Nobel or even an Ig Nobel. The other type of study one could do would take two populations, give one group placebo, the other group vitamin C, and see what happens over time in that population. The problem with these studies is that cultures are usually not done looking for the true etiology of the cold and are less compelling than a challenge study. But these sorts of studies are more representative of the real world. 
Now, this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, the toppest of top-notch journals. In 1976, they had such a study. They randomized 868 children to either a gram of vitamin C or placebo and saw if they got a cold, and if they did, were they improved. This was the follow-up to an earlier study that suggested that vitamin C could lead to less severe symptoms in children. I quote from the article, quote, There is no difference in the number becoming ill, the number of episodes, or the mean illness duration between the groups. Children receiving vitamin C had fewer throat cultures yielding beta-hemolytic strep, but no overall difference in complicated illness rate. Vitamin C levels were higher in the vitamin group after supplementation. Children with higher plasma vitamin C concentrations had a longer mean illness. End quote. Curiously, kids who had high vitamin C levels were actually sicker longer, perhaps because the body fights infection by making free radicals. And if you give a molecule that takes up free radicals, you're going to blunt the effect of the immune system on the infection. It is interesting that the kids with vitamin C were sicker longer, given that vitamin C is a potent antioxidant and part of how the body deals with infections is the generation of oxidative free radicals. Abby Hoffman, watch out. So that's the best two clinical trials in the best two medical journals. Now I know that my raison d'etre is the gruesome dissection of clinical trials, but I cannot do it for this podcast. Now these two trials are representative of maybe 30 plus other clinical trials that in total represent over 11,000 patients. I have read most of the trials, and they are pretty consistent. It is nicely summed up in a Cochrane review from 2006, and basically every study shows much the same result. Now, these studies do have great variability. The dose of vitamin C goes anywhere from a gram a day to 15 grams a day. There were studies with adults and studies with kids, and most of the times cultures were not done. If there was a season of low cold virulence or high cold virulence, we'll never know. And when would like to really know what vitamin C blood levels were in patients, but these studies do all pretty much demonstrate the same thing. In normal people with normal nutrition, taking various doses of vitamin C, it does not prevent colds in either the natural history or laboratory inoculation. It does not make the cold last for a meaningfully shorter period of time. The Cochrane Review estimates an 8% overall decrease in duration of symptoms, or about 23 hours in a 12-day illness if you're taking vitamin C prophylactically. Vitamin C only shortens the duration of your cold if you're taking the vitamin C before the onset of the cold. If you start taking your vitamin C at the onset of symptoms, it does nothing for duration or severity. Now, kids get maybe six, adults maybe get two to four, and the elderly get maybe one cold a year. For an adult, that means they're likely to be anywhere between 14 and 28 days of illness a year from the cold. So if you took vitamin C all winter, you might get two to four less sick days divided up into about half-day increments. Not very impressive. Shakespeare must have had vitamin C research in mind when he wrote Much Ado About Nothing. If you could decrease a death rate by 8%, now that would be impressive. But an 8% decrease in the common cold, taking preventative vitamin C all the time, I am not impressed. 
Karlowski considered the effect, even if real, had no clinical importance and concluded that, quote, it does not seem worthwhile to take two capsules or tablets three times a day for the rest of one's life to achieve such a small and equivocal benefit. This was in a JAMA trial that showed that vitamin C was not effective. Simply put, vitamin C does not decrease the symptoms in any meaningful clinical way. If you could look at severity scores, which vary from study to study, the best decrease in severity scores were in smaller studies, and the bigger studies had less effect. The effect of vitamin C in these studies is fairly minimal. The overall effect is small and of very little clinical relevance. Now, most of the studies have looked at 2, 4, or 8 grams a day of vitamin C, and vitamin C proponents think that you need to take a lot more than that. And given how quickly vitamin C is eliminated from the body, you need to take it more frequently. One commentator in the Cochrane Review said, and here I quote, I routinely dose to bowel tolerance. 0.5 grams every hour for eight hours will reach bowel tolerance for me. When I begin to become ill, I have dosed as high as half a gram every 20 minutes without reaching bowel tolerance. Bowel tolerance? Basically, take vitamin C until you puke and have diarrhea? Hardly seems worth it. It's just a cold. The time, the cost, and the effort hardly seem worth it. Now, there is one subgroup that does have a consistent effect. Those with high stress, like skiers and soldiers, who did have a reduction in vitamin C incidence with high-dose vitamin C. Now, stress increases vitamin C metabolism. And you do not know from these studies if vitamin C that they took took in the normal levels because of the high stress, they were metabolizing it faster. And that's why it lowered their risk compared to other stressed individuals. So how might you put all this together? Vitamin C is needed for various metabolic functions. Infections, for example, can markedly increase metabolic demands to help fight off infection. And stresses, like infection, deplete stores of vitamin C. Studies have demonstrated that vitamin C levels in the blood decrease by about half during a cold or other infections. Taking a supplement does prevent that fall. It would appear from the literature that the effect of vitamin C is like stress doses of steroids or insulin. So here's my bad metaphor. Let's say your body is a car and vitamin C is the gas. Under normal circumstances, filling the car to the brim doesn't add to your ability to get back and forth from the liquor store. You have at baseline all the gas or vitamin C that you need. If you are stressed, like going on a long trip, you need more gas, and so additional gas would help. If you are normal and about to be stressed by, say, a drive to the wine country, and here might I suggest the excellent Maison Bistro for a superb meal in McMinnville, Oregon, next time you visit our fine Pinot Noir country, then topping off the gas tank may be helpful in reaching your goal. If you are stressed and didn't bother to get a fill-up, by the time you get the gas, i.e. by the time you are ill, it is too late to make the difference of a self-limited disease. It would appear to me that the effect of vitamin C, what little there is, is to boost the reserve a touch so one is better able to handle the stress of a cold. But since most of us can still coast the last block even if the tank runs dry, the effect is minimal. Thank you. I am Dr. Metaphor. I have a PhD in metaphorableness. <laughs> That's my new tagline. Now, it costs about $7,635 per patient in a phase three trial. I got that number from Google, which means that maybe they have spent $84 million on clinical trials because Dr. Pauling shot his mouth off. 
And that's not including the amount spent on vitamin C by people who thought it would decrease their colds and flu symptoms. Do you know how many MacBook Airs you could buy with $84 million? 46684 That's how many. All that time, all that money, and all that effort can demonstrate that one can decrease the duration of a cold by maybe less than a day. When I get my Nobel Prize, I'm going to use the fame and money to do something worthwhile and beneficial for humanity. I'm going to open up a brew pub. Better than what Linus Pauling did. Side effects of vitamin C? None really, just GI upset or the bowel tolerance. So that sums up a pretty large literature on vitamin C. Taken therapeutically, it doesn't decrease duration nor decrease disease severity. If taken prophylactically, it doesn't prevent and it insignificantly decreases the duration and severity of disease. Now, the literature on this topic is huge, and the best way to find the information is to go to PubMed and search. Some of the references are on the website. And so that's it. I'm probably going to put these out about every two months. This has been another Quackcast, a side project of Pusware.com, where you can find the Persiflazers Puscast a bi-weekly review of infectious diseases, where you can even get type 1 CME free. Copyright 2008, Creative Commons. References and show notes can be linked from quackcast.com, as well as old podcasts, which are archived there as well. Send your hate mail, and I may someday answer it. As you know, I find answering email to be particularly onerous. That's onerous, not odorous. But I will eventually, I hope, answer everyone who writes me eventually. Because, as always, the world needs more Mark Chrislop. Don't forget the Science-Based Medicine blog, where I'm an occasional contributor. Thank you for listening. And now I'm going to go for a walk on the beach. And we'll finish up with George Schraub from the very funny geologic podcast with a reprise of his cough song. Thank you always. See you in a couple of months. Goodbye. Huh. <laughs>